0: Good morning, America. For all of my American listeners out there, it's time to put on your red, white, and blue and head to the polls. Here's a special episode to listen to while you wait in line at your polling place. Thank you so much for voting. For my international listeners, if you'd like to encourage Americans to get out and vote, consider sending them a pizza while they wait in line by visiting polls.pizza. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to share a few quick election resources. If you don't know your polling place, you can Google, where do I vote? And the internet will tell you. If you show up to your polling place and you're not on their list, ask for a provisional ballot. If you think your voting rights may have been violated, call 866-R-VOTE. If you want an impartial source of information about a race in your area, check out www.votesmart.org. If you live in California, you can find a non voter's guide at www.ballot.fyi. If you live in the Bay Area and want a guide to local San Francisco propositions, check out www.theleaguesf.org. Finally, I would ask that all my listeners all around the world think deeply about the issues at stake in the Dreyfus Affair. Do you see those same issues at stake in your own country today? How does the Dreyfus Affair make you feel, and how will you prevent something like this from happening where you live? The point of history isn't just to learn facts for the fun of it, it's to help human beings learn from their mistakes of the past and build a better future. If there's one reason I started the Land of Desire, it was to help others realize the value of history as an opportunity to do it better this time around. Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast on the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history. In this episode, we'll continue our series on the Dreyfus Affair, an epic tale of espionage, conspiracy, and political cover-up which rocked the nation of France for half a century. If you haven't listened to parts 1, 2, and 3 of this little mini-series, I'd recommend doing so first, because otherwise this episode won't make as much sense. And besides, those first parts are really juicy and exciting and you don't want to miss out. At the moment when the Dreyfus affair seemed to be over, it was really just getting started. Yes, Emile Zola and his publisher were found guilty of libel. Yes. Colonel Picard was now facing his own charges of forgery. Yes, Alfred Dreyfus was still wasting away on Devil's Island. But look at what was really going on. In each trial of the Dreyfus Affair so far, a new layer of the conspiracy had been revealed. During Esther court-martial, the world learned about the secret folder of documents. During Zola's trial, the world learned, if it was paying attention, that the secret folder of documents was the result of a conspiracy. General Billot, the new minister of war, was no fool, and he could read the writing on the wall. There was no way the Dreyfus affair was gone for good. So he assigned his son-in-law to prepare a complete inventory of the Dreyfus file, working underneath the trusted second-in-command of the armed forces, General Gans. What the Minister of War didn't know was that General Gantz and his superior, General Boideff, the Chief of Staff of the Armed Forces, were both members of a conspiracy against Dreyfus. General Gantz took this inventory as an opportunity to screw around with the evidence yet again, forging dates and just generally doing shifty things to help support the military's case against Dreyfus. At this point, I am not convinced that anybody in the military or the counter-espionage unit called the Section of Statistics even remembered what the original state of the Dreyfus file was. Once the inventory was complete, General Boisdeuf read it, stamped it, and signed it. Once again, a collection of forged, fraudulent, treasonous documents received a knowing thumbs up from the head of the armed forces. As it turned out, General Billot's instincts were right. At the exact moment that the military thought they were putting the finishing touches on the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, a brand new twist was about to reopen the trial of Emile Zola. As was to be expected, Zola had gone through the usual appeals process. What no one expected was that on April 2nd, the Attorney General, Manot, stood up to give a speech. Jean-Pierre Manot was a 76-year-old aging idealist who had participated in youth movements back when he was in his early 20s. Now, leading the highest court in France, Manot resurrected that idealistic zeal from his youth. The old man was shocked at the state of modern France, with its citizens too busy worshiping the military and the state to care for their own precious civil rights and Manot was appalled at the anti-Semitism and its attendant violence sweeping the country. With a cracking voice, whether from age or emotion, Attorney General Manot went beyond discussing Zola's appeal to touch on the entire Dreyfus affair, starting with the trial of Alfred Dreyfus himself. Those in favor of revisiting that first fateful courtroom drama were, in Manot's words, neither traitors nor sellouts, but the honor of the country. Meno went on to express his fury and disappointment in his beloved country, and concluded by quoting scripture, Thou shalt not follow the multitude to do evil, and when thou shalt speak at a trial, thou shalt not proceed so as to pervert the law. Two days later, to everybody's surprise, the High Court of Appeals reached its decision. Zola's conviction was overturned. With the overturning of Zola's conviction, the judiciary was now in direct conflict with the executive branch of France, whose prime ministers and presidents had personally argued for Zola's and Dreyfus's guilt. Meanwhile, the shocked judges from Dreyfus's original court martial, the same men who had been shown that secret file of documents during their deliberations, they immediately filed suit against Zola themselves. To make matters worse, the national elections were just around the corner. It was a confusing time to be in France. I won't go into too much detail, but by this point in time there was no such thing as being in the middle anymore. The right and left wings of the country hated one another, and they saw the other as representing an entirely different vision of the country than their own. The left wing was seen as a destabilizing force, undermining the military and the government, Meanwhile, the right-wing actually was a destabilizing force, leading anti-Semitic attacks across the entire country and threatening more real violence as a consequence if things didn't go their way. There was no longer any safe, boring middle ground to walk on as a politician. After twelve days of trying to put together a government that would work, finally a weird muddled together cabinet made up of mostly radicals managed to win approval after it offered the Ministry of War to a right-wing military hero, Godfrey Cavagnac. Cavagnac was a military man through and through, but more importantly, Cavagnac was spotless. He had the reputation of being a virtuous man, firmly set against any kind of corruption. Cavagnac was absolutely convinced of Alfred Dreyfus's guilt from the start, but he despised the kinds of methods that his predecessors had adopted, staying silent and citing matters of state as a reason not to be transparent with the country. Why should the military hide its cards in this fight? Kavenyak believed the Dreyfus affair, and of course, the Jewish syndicate he believed was behind the whole national crisis, would only go away if the entire affair was brought out into the light. Of course, what Kavenyak didn't know was that, whoops, the whole thing really is based on forged evidence and lies the members of the actual conspiracy, like General Boideff, began freaking out. Kavenyak may have thought he was on the military's side, but by seeking the truth, he had become their worst nightmare. Once again, Boideff used his authority to influence matters, strongly cautioning Kavenyak not to worry about such and such document, and you can definitely trust the word of all of his men, and... Don't trouble yourself with such and such evidence. But Cavignac wasn't some awestruck judge in a lower military court. He was the Minister of War, and he was going to carry on his investigation precisely as he pleased. In the middle of July, when Lucy Dreyfus wrote to the High Court of Appeals again and threatened to stir up another riot in the hot summer days, Cavignac decided to present his findings to the nation. On July 7th, Cavaignac stood up in Parliament to announce his proof of the truth. To begin with, Cavaignac said, the supporters of Alfred Dreyfus were not traitors. They were French citizens of good faith who were nevertheless misled by the evidence. Today, Cavaignac intended to share the real evidence so that everyone in France could come to agreement over Alfred Dreyfus's guilt. To do so, Cavagnac shared what he called three out of a thousand pieces of evidence. First, Cavagnac displayed a letter written by the Italian military attaché to the German military attaché. It seemed to reference the Dreyfus Affair, but Cavagnac didn't realize Commandant Henry of the Section of Statistics had forged an insignificant letter to look as though it related to the Dreyfus Affair. Second, Cavagnac introduced the Scoundrel D letter from the original trial of Alfred Dreyfus, the letter that had dumbfounded Alfred's brother Matthew, because a letter that refers to Scoundrel D? What does that mean? Who is Scoundrel D? Is it my brother? How do you know? Does Scoundrel D have anything to do with this? Third, Cavagnac produced what he claimed was his most important evidence of all, a letter which seemed to be from the Italian embassy. It seemed to refer to Alfred Dreyfus by name. This letter was referred to by General Pellieu during the trial of Emile Zola as being definitive proof of Alfred Dreyfus's guilt. This letter had been forged by Commandant Henry himself late one night as he pasted a clumsily forged letter of his own onto real Italian embassy letterhead. Commandant Henry had not bothered to make sure that the graph paper of the different sections of the document lined up properly, but I guess Kavignac didn't look very closely before he held up this letter as his ultimate trump card in front of the entire nation. After presenting his three pieces of proof, Kavignac brought down the house by concluding, May all Frenchmen be able to come together tomorrow, to proclaim that the army, which is their pride and their hope, is not only mighty with its own strength, is not only strong with the nation's trust, but strong as well in the justice of the acts that it has accomplished. How ironic. Parliament cheered and gave Cavignac a standing ovation. And around the country, transcripts of Cavagnac's speech were posted on signs, next to reproductions of that damning letter. Cavagnac was the hero of the hour. Instead of hiding in secrecy, Cavignac had shared the state's evidence with the people of France. Instead of castigating those who had believed in Dreyfus's innocence, Cavagnac extended them an olive branch and praised them for their misguided but admirable commitment to justice. At last, it seemed as though France was ready to put the entire affair behind them. And yet, as one Dreyfus supporter summed up in the days following Cavagnac's speech, he has conceded. Think back to what Cavaignac's speech really said. It said that reasons of state aren't a good enough reason to deny due process. It said that the intellectuals supporting Dreyfus did so in good faith. It said that the military's threats that war might befall France if the military's evidence was shared with the people was unacceptable and insufficient. It said that anyone had the right, following the Minister of War's example, to examine the documents and facts of the case for themselves and review them in detail to draw their own conclusions. Finally, look at what Cavignac had implied about the earlier trials of Alfred Dreyfus and Colonel Esteragy. Yes, there had been secret documents passed to Alfred Dreyfus's judges. And this was because the original documents against Dreyfus weren't good enough to convince anybody that Dreyfus was guilty. The only real convincing proof of Dreyfus' guilt was the letter that mentioned Dreyfus by name, the letter that Cavagnac had just held up in front of the nation, the letter that was fake. At the time, it looked as though Cavignac had settled the question once and for all, Later, historians would look back to say that the case for revisiting Alfred Dreyfus' original trial was all thanks to Cavignac's speech. Because now, the lid was off. All around the country, Cavignac's speech was posted in every town, next to reproductions of the damning letter. Now, anybody... Anywhere in France could literally see the evidence used against Alfred Dreyfus and judge for themselves whether that evidence was sufficient. How long would it take before someone, somewhere in France, realized the truth? The next day, Jean Waday, a socialist leader and a powerful Dreyfus supporter, published a letter to Cavagnac in the newspaper, thanking him for, quote, his useful labor in presenting to the country a part of the dossier on Dreyfus. Henceforth, it will no longer be permitted to talk of the necessity of a closed session. You did not dare to say that secret documents had not been communicated to the judges without being given to the defendant. Better still, by quoting the documents, which, in your opinion, ought to be the basis of one's belief, and which do not figure in the bill of indictment against Alfred Dreyfus, You admit, you proclaim, the monstrous iniquity of the military proceedings. At bottom, your arguments don't carry, they have no merit. Far from shaking my deep conviction, they have, on the contrary, confirmed it, and more than ever, I am convinced that a monstrous judicial error has been committed." Wade went on to indict Esteragy as the actual spy, and he called out the damning letter naming Dreyfus as, quote, the crudest and most glaring of forgeries produced just in time to save Esteragy. Before Cavagnac even had time to respond, a stunning new witness stepped forward. Christian Esteragy had finally figured things out. After asking his uncle, Colonel Estragi, over and over for updates on that inheritance that he had asked his uncle to look after, Christian did a little digging around, and he discovered his money was not tied up in a bank or in the stock market. The entire time Christian had been helping his besieged uncle through his trial, his uncle had been swindling him. Furious, Christian approached Fernand Labori, the lawyer of both Lucy Dreyfus and Emile Zola. He poured out every bit of information he knew about the conspiracy surrounding his uncle. Christian had passed notes between his uncle and officials at the section of statistics. He had helped arrange secret meetings between his uncle and those officials. Above all, Christian revealed his uncle's idiotic blackmail letters to the president of France in which Colonel Esteragy had originally demanded that his name be kept out of the papers or else he'd publish embarrassing military documents. Meanwhile, in a stroke of complete luck, while Christian and Fernand Laboury were arranging the transfer of that damning evidence against Esteragy, another long-forgotten figure reappeared. One of the judges in the original court-martial against Esteragy, had finally been convinced that some of the evidence Esteragy had turned over was fake. This judge had just received proof of that fact. This minor judge ordered the arrest of Esteragy, just before Christian Esteragy and Fernand Labarre were about to order the same thing. So there's a lot of people in France chasing after Colonel Ester-Agy. Meanwhile. Cavagnac was prepared to arrest Colonel Picard as payback for insinuating that those precious three pieces of evidence were false. On trumped-up charges that Picard had illegally shown top-secret evidence to his lawyer while Picard was investigating whether or not Dreyfus was guilty, Colonel Picard was arrested and sent to La Santé prison, where he sat just a few jail cells down from the newly arrested Colonel Esteragy. Within just a few weeks of Cavaignac's triumphant speech to the nation, everything had fallen apart. Esteragy was in jail for forging evidence. Colonel Picard, who wanted Esteragy in jail, was also in the same jail, suspected of forging evidence against Esteragy. Picard filed a lawsuit against Commandant Petit de Clam of the Section of Statistics for forging evidence against him. General Boideff decided it was time to get sick and take a leave of absence. His second-in-command started feeling under the weather, too. Commandant Henry walked around trembling on the verge of a nervous breakdown at the idea that someone somewhere was going to figure out he had forged everything that everybody was talking about, and nobody had any idea what was going on. The government had about seven different legal proceedings going on all at the same time without realizing that all of those proceedings were actually in conflict with one another. If you've just spent the last three minutes being super confused, that's exactly what you should be feeling because this is ridiculous, everyone has lost their minds, and nothing in France is making any sense. In the meantime, while all of that nonsense is going on, it's time for Emile Zola's new libel trial to come to court. Emile Zola and his lawyer, Fernand Labourie, decided that they had one last card to play. They were going to convince the judge to abandon this stupid pretension that Zola's trial was all about this very tiny, narrow question of what the judges had going through their minds when they decided to acquit Esteragy. Instead of discussing this very tiny question. Let's discuss the whole thing. Let's talk about the whole Dreyfus affair, starting from the discovery that there was a spy in France. No. There's no way the judge is going to open up that can of worms. He told Zola, nope, we're sticking to this teeny tiny narrow window. Once Zola realized that the trial he wanted was actually just going to be another farce, he stood up from the defendant's bench and he walked out of the courtroom. While the judge was sentencing Zola to a year in prison, Emile Zola packed his bags, got the heck out of Dodge, and set up a new life in a small hotel just outside London, under the name Monsieur Pascal. In the midst of all of these insane, conflicting court cases, while an internationally renowned criminal is escaping the country, the Minister of War, Cavagnac, appears to have had a wee Bit of a mental breakdown. Remember when he made his speech just a few weeks ago and he acknowledged that Dreyfus's supporters were acting on their own moral compass and really ought to be commended for their commitment to French ideals. Yeah, that's over now. On August 11th, a few weeks after Zola had packed his bags and fled the country, Cavagnac attended a state dinner at the Prime Minister's home. In front of the assembled cabinet, Cavagnac revealed his great plan for France. He was going to do away with all ideas about jurisdiction and bring all the leaders of the Dreyfus movement in front of the High Court of France on suspicion of plotting against the state. This group would include the former vice president of the Senate, Scherer Kessner, the former ministers of justice, Picard's lawyer, Picard himself, the leading newspaper publisher and politician Georges Clemenceau, anybody in Parliament who disagreed with Cavagnac, and of course, Emile Zola and Matthew Dreyfus. Much to his surprise, Cavagnac's grand plan was met with a really awkward silence. The Prime Minister put down his fork and basically said, No, we will not be doing that. Hard pass. Cavaniac probably felt a little better the next day when Esteragy was released from prison, uh, that brave little magistrate who could, it turned out, could not, uh, and that case was thrown out. So, Estragi was free, Picard was in prison, members of the conspiracy are sweating through their shirts, and Zola, the great champion of justice, lives across the sea. As Zola wrote back home, "'You would not believe the horror aroused in me by the echoes coming my way from France. We can no longer depend on the system of justice.' My only hopes now are with the unknown, the unexpected. We need a lightning bolt falling from the sky. On August 13th, the day after Estragi had been released from prison, Captain Louis Quignet picked up his magnifying glass. His boss, the Minister of War, Cavagnac, had been rattled by accusations that the evidence he had presented to Parliament was false, and Cavignac had asked his trusted subordinate to investigate all of the documents closely. Late that night, Captain Cuignet held the damning letter from the Italian military attaché Panazardi to the German military attaché Schwarzkappen up to the light. This crucial letter, which actually mentioned Dreyfus by name the only proof that Esteragy wasn't the real spy, the letter which had been personally vouched for by the chief of the armed forces himself, General Boisdèf, the letter on which Cavaignac's whole argument depended, the letter which had been reproduced on posters all around the country, looked a little funny. All of a sudden, Cuignet saw it. The lines of the graph paper didn't match up. In fact, though the public wouldn't have been able to tell from the black and white posters all around the country, the lines of the graph paper weren't even the same color. The letterhead and the signature were blue-gray, and the body of the letter was purple. Obviously, somebody had pasted together two different documents. This was the letter that Commandant Henry claimed to have fished out of Madame Bastian's sack of scraps collected at the German embassy, this was the letter supposedly tossed in the trash by the German military attaché Schwarzkappen, at that moment, all became clear to Captain Quignet. If this letter was a forgery, then the officer who claimed to have found it, Commandant Henry, was a liar. Worse yet, that meant that Esther Agis probably really was the spy, since every bit of evidence besides this letter had pointed that way originally. Worst of all, it meant that Quignet's boss, Minister of War Cavagnac, had staked his entire reputation on a piece of false evidence and then sent copies of that evidence all over the country. Poor Captain Quignet had to be the bearer of some seriously bad news. If we take a moment to remember episode two, another officer had once found himself in this same position. Years earlier, poor, forgotten Colonel Picard had approached the heads of the military, and he had told them the same thing, that the evidence against Dreyfus was fishy. His military superiors had told him at the time, if you do not say anything, no one will know. This time, however, the reaction to Captain Quignet's discovery was different. Despite the fact that only 48 hours earlier, Cavagnac was dreaming up a plan to denounce the entire Dreyfus cause in front of the highest court in the land, despite the fact that Quignet's evidence would be incredibly embarrassing to Cavagnac's reputation, not once did Cavaignac hesitate about doing the right thing. Cavignac was careless, and he was maniacal, But true to his reputation, Cavignac was never corrupt. A few days after Captain Quignet's discovery, Colonel Estragi received a note asking him to appear before a military investigatory board. Estragi lost it. The other shoe was about to drop. Packing his bags, Estragi was in the middle of checking the train schedule when his mistress caught him in the act his mistress was furious, screaming at him and shaming him as a coward and a scoundrel, and Estragi decided to put off his escape. In some ways, her scolding is responsible for everything that was about to follow. Minister of War Cavagnac, lied to by the section of statistics, misled by the head of the military, was determined to get to the bottom of this himself. Colonel Estragi himself was a pretty slippery character, and he claimed, I was just asked to do the dirty work of the military, and now I'm being set up to take the fall for them. Estragi was discharged from the army, basically considered a pawn of these military superiors by Cavignac. But Cavignac focused on what the hell the section of statistics and the military were up to. General Boisdèf was summoned from his sickbed to Cavaignac's office where he watched the Minister of War personally interrogate the man who seemed to be at the center of everything, the director of the section of statistics, Commandant Henry. After hours of relentless interrogation about the evidence, Cavaignac finally confronted Commandant Henry with the undeniable truth. He asked Henry, in 1896, You received an envelope with a letter inside, an insignificant letter. Did you suppress the insignificant letter and fabricate another one? After a long silence, Henry finally replied, Yes. Cavagnac ordered Henry arrested to be sent to the prison of cherche the same prison in which Alfred Dreyfus had spent his long days before trial. While Henry was served his first lunch the next afternoon, he asked for paper, a pen, and a bottle of rum. Throughout the long, hot afternoon, Henry wrote to his wife. He wrote, I am absolutely innocent. They know it, and everyone will know it later on, but right now I can't speak. Take good care of our adored little Joseph and continue loving him as I love him and as I love you. Time and again, Henry drained his glass of rum. The room was sweltering. Henry was sweating. Commandant Henry picked up his pen and paper again and wrote My beloved Bert, I am like a madman. A frightening pain is gripping my brain. I am going to take a swim in the Seine. Piece by piece, Commandant Henry shed his jacket, his boots, his shirt and he stretched out on his bed. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, Commandant Hubert-Joseph Henry slit his own throat. One by one, the delicate edifices sustained by Henry's forged evidence crumbled. Boisdeff offered his resignation, The Prime Minister wrote to Lucy Dreyfus, quietly mentioning that the time was right for her to ask for a revision of her husband's trial. Cavagnac resigned, and in all the confusion and chaos, as France revisited everything it thought it knew about the Dreyfus affair, its military, its leadership, as the nation held its breath to see what would happen next, Colonel Esteragy shaved his mustache hopped a train, and snuck into Brussels on foot, before making his way to England where he would settle down just 31 miles away from his accuser, Emile Zola. Meanwhile, Colonel Picard became the new focus of anti-Dreyfus forces. According to them, who cared whether anybody forged evidence against Alfred Dreyfus or not? Picard, instead, was accused of forging the Petit Bleu, the telegram which had Esteragy's name on the back, the first piece of evidence that had named Esteragy as the real spy. Of course, the source of that claim of forgery was none other than the late, disgraced Commandant Henry himself, the guy that we've just demonstrated forged all the other evidence. But logic and reason had no role to play in the minds of the anti-Dreyfus crowd. In his last speech to the courtroom before a verdict was reached about whether or not they were going to try Picard for forgery or release him, Colonel Picard warned, "'This is perhaps the last time before the secret proceedings that I will be able to say a word in public. I want it to be known. Should Henry's razor be found in my cell, it would have been a murder.' A man such as myself would never for an instant think about committing suicide. I will go with my head held high before this accusation, and with the same serenity that I have brought before my accusers, I have had my say. Picard would remain in prison, awaiting trial for all the events to follow. On September 27th, the criminal chamber of the High Court of Appeal gathered together to decide whether or not Lucy Dreyfus could press her husband's case. Before beginning, one of the High Court justices read a statement to the courtroom, saying, "...to bring the truth to light. That is the mission the law imposes on you. Removed from every other consideration than that of justice... "...invulnerable to any suggestion, insensitive to threats and to outrage, you have before you a great task. You will appreciate what it requires, and you will do what your conscience dictates." The next day, the former attorney-prosecutor, Jean-Pierre Menau, the same one who had been outraged during Emile Zola's trial at what he saw as a miscarriage of justice, stood up in court again, this time with tears in his eyes. O oh, sacred laws! For the protection of the accused and even of the convicted, what have they done to you? Let the Republic's justice then proceed, let it cross the seas. The verdict rang throughout the court. Alfred Dreyfus would get a retrial. 10,000 miles away from the High Court of Appeals, Alfred Dreyfus had given up. He asked for a revision of his trial. He asked for a copy of the evidence against him. He asked for a copy of the French Penal Code. He asked for any kind of a response from anyone, anyone. Only silence returned. Alfred Dreyfus declared he would no longer write to anyone until he received a response, not even his wife. Alfred sank into the greatest depression he had experienced so far, growing weak, refusing to eat, or drink, or even stand up. Finally, one month after the High Court's decision, Alfred received a letter from his beloved wife Lucy, and she writes, And so we arrive at the last stage, the final crisis that will return to us what we so unjustly lost, our honor that will bring you back to all your dear ones who are beside themselves with joy at the thought of seeing you, of hugging you in their arms, of showing you how much they love you." Now that his status as a trader to France was officially in question, Dreyfus was released from his tiny hut on Devil's Island. He could now walk around the island, he could eat full rations, and for the first time since his arrival, Alfred Dreyfus could see the ocean. He knew his day in court would come soon. It was only a matter of time. But what he didn't know was the size of the Dreyfus affair back home and the extreme danger faced by his wife, his children, his supporters, even his lawyer, the violence rising in the streets between the two Frances as they came to clash. And what he didn't know was that before Dreyfus would ever step foot on a boat, The forces conspiring against him would seek nothing less than to bring down the French government itself. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. This week, I'll continue adding all kinds of material related to the Dreyfus Affair on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and by mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. We just celebrated our 200th Facebook follower and our 70,000th download, so I think it's time we all started getting to know one another. In the weeks to come, I'll be adding more discussion questions and interesting French history content to the Land of Desire's Facebook page, so do drop by and say bonjour. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you join me again in two weeks for the final installments of our series on the Dreyfus Affair.